Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 is where we're going to be. We're actually going to take, as you know, I was gone last week as my grandmother passed, but we're going to Actually, these verses actually fit together in a unit. So what I was going to preach last week, I just combined with this week. And we're just going to cover a lot of ground. But you'll see that they actually fit together quite nicely in a unit. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Remember, if you have no idea where 1 Thessalonians is, feel free to use the table of contents. It's in the New Testament. And look for the big number 4. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. Remember, the New Testament says someone's coming again. Old Testament, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, someone's here. Whole rest of the New Testament, someone's coming again. So who is that someone? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And actually, this passage that we're going to read this morning talks about specifically what that someone's coming again is going to look like. And so as you're opening up there, I remember hearing a question back in high school. And the question was, if you were to die tonight, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will go to heaven? I remember being asked that question by my young life leader when I was in high school, and I didn't really have a a sure or solid answer to that question, despite growing up in church my whole life. When that question was asked at the heart level, I was kind of like, I don't know. And it it was an uncomfortable but a very important question that God used in my life. And when we think about that question, I think we instinctively recoil when we think about death Because it presents us with a reminder that we live in a fallen world, and it presents us with a problem that we can't empirically prove on our own. Because if we were able to do that, it means that we would actually have to die ourselves to find out the answer. So it's this kind of like unknown thing that we fear because we can't empirically prove it ourselves. And so regardless of whether you answer that question from a purely secular, atheistic worldview or a deeply religious worldview, you still end up in the same place, if you really think about it. You end up taking it all on faith because you can't empirically prove it. We, whether you, whichever way you approach that question, which is, you know, what happens to us after we die, you basically end up in the same place. You have to accept it on faith. And humans have wrestled with that question, though. What happens to us after we die questions for our entire existence? And you may have wrestled with this question of yourself. There's been various answers to that. You know, there's the, we live, we die, it's over, that's it. You know, there's more of the Buddhist philosophy, which is like you're a bucket of water getting thrown into the ocean and you kind of dissolve. Christopher Hitchens Um, famous kind of secular atheist guy. He said, I I feel like I'm just going to dissolve like a lump of sugar. There's all kind of different views that are there. And death is not a fun thing to think about. But if you consider yourself a Christian, you ever thought about how Christianity changed absolutely everything about your world and life view, including the way that you think about death in this particular topic? What if the thing we fear the most is actually incredible news when viewed through the lens of the biblical gospel? What if it changes absolutely everything? As you know, this past week was a tough one for our family. My 90-year-old grandmother passed away after a months-long battle with cancer, and we buried her next to her husband and son in Easley, South Carolina. And as I listened to my cousin, who's also a, a Baptist minister, as I listened to my cousin preach her funeral which is a tough thing for him to do. My grandma basically raised him. 
And as I, I listened to my cousin preach her funeral, and then as I later spoke at the graveside, what struck me was that while that entire event was deeply sad, it wasn't hopeless. In the first century, this was not the case. We think about what the Thessalonians, what we're about to read. Let's set this in context, okay? This was, in the first century, this was not the case. And the Thessalonians obviously wrestled deeply with this topic. One of my professors, Dr. Carroll, wrote a really helpful commentary on this. Here's what he said. He said, ancient epitaphs for graves reveal a significant difference between the hopelessness of pagans and the hope of Christians. A very common Latin abbreviation that was used on pagan tombstones was non-fui, fui, non-sum, non-curo, which translates as I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. And on the other end of the spectrum, there was a tradition of hiring professional mourners to come in and grieve excessively to kind of raise awareness and attendance at funerals and somehow honor the dead with not this stoic, I care not, but kind of honoring the dead with one last big weeping and, and moaning and wailing. And that was the way that you honored the deceased. And so you can imagine this young church in the ancient Greco-Roman world wrestling deeply with these questions as they considered their fallen fellow saints. Is there any hope for them? Is it you live, you die, it's over, and that's it? What, what hope do our brothers and sisters that we knew in the faith, what, what, what happens to them? And you can remember Paul had been ripped from them prematurely and had been unable to complete his theological training with them, and so he wrote to them. You remember Timothy brings a report back about the, what's going on at the church in Thessalonica, and when Timothy returned, he must have included some details about these questions because it prompted Paul to write what actually are some incredibly hopeful words about the hope that Christians have beyond the grave that we still cling tightly to in our own moments of grief. The very words that I read just a few days ago to my extended family as my hand was on the casket of my grandmother. Incredibly hopeful words. Let's find out what Paul wrote to them this morning as we look to God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, and we're going to go through verse 11 of chapter 5. So I'm going to read a decent clip. As we go through, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with, them, with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you, are, you yourselves are fully aware of the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 
So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet for hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and I am grateful for that. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we come before you with expectant hearts, hearts wide open to hear your word, and we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would take these words and apply them to our hearts Lord, help me to speak clearly and faithfully. Anything that I say in error, may it be quickly forgotten. Those things that point to you, O Lord, may they be remembered. Lord, these are precious promises. Remind us of your hope. Remind us of the hope that we have in Christ, the hope of the gospel, O Lord, as we look to your word. And we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've hung around here for any length of time, it will come as no shock to anyone in this room that I am a fan of old creeds and confessions. We in kind of a the Presbyterian reform world, we love old creeds and confessions because like the Psalms, creeds and confessions oftentimes give us the words that we need to process these questions that we all have as we struggle through this life and they help us understand like what we're to believe and how we're to feel. Like you think about the Psalms, sometimes if you're going through a tough time or sadness or whatever, the Psalms kind of come in and give you the words that you need sometimes to process what's going on in your heart. The creeds and confessions give us the answers that we need as we try to figure out you know, our Christian faith and who Christ is and what God has done. The, the, the confessions give us helpful verbiage in that way. And I think one of the most comforting catechism answers, I know you typically don't put catechism and comforting together, but in my opinion, one of the most comforting catechism answers is question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism which was published in 1563. As you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we're going through in the morning starts off with question one asking, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism starts off with this question, which is a great question and a great answer. Here's what it says. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What a great question. Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What an incredible answer to that question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Did you notice it didn't start off with you and what you should be doing? What is your only comfort in life and death? It starts that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death. 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What an incredible opening sentence to that answer. And it just goes on from there. And you'll notice that there were two big things in this catechism answer. And those, actual, those two big things are actually present in the text we just read this morning, which is going to be our two points. And so our outline this morning is we see two things in this text. Number one, we see a vital union. A vital union. The other thing we see is a vital response. So a vital union and a vital response. This will actually also follow the indicative, a statement of fact, drives the imperative, a call to action. So this vital union that we have drives the way that we live and we respond in this world. That's where we're going. So let's look at that first point, a vital union. This is going to be the longest one by far, but we want to set the stage up theologically before we turn and say, so what? Okay, so a vital union. Notice in the Heidelberg it said that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Theologically, what we are talking about here is this, this super important doctrine called union with Christ. We taught an entire Wednesday night fellowship study on this last year. Absolutely essential doctrine, union with Christ. Look at verse 13 as we start off here in chapter 4. Paul begins to complete his teaching. You can notice that he left something hanging because he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. There's this question that you have, and I want to help you understand. This is what Paul is basically saying here. And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Here's what Dr. Kara, who is a Pauline scholar, wrote in his commentary. He said, although sleep was commonly used in Greek literature as a figurative way of referring to death without any inherent implications about the afterlife, the frequent use of sleep in both the Old and New Testaments shows that it was a wonderful metaphor, rich with meaning, to describe the state of those who had died with a trust in God. Kara went on to describe in his commentary that for Christians, this sleep refers to the body, not to the soul. And again, this is where the catechisms come in, and they're incredibly helpful. We read many weeks ago, we're in like question 86 now, we read back in question 37, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? What a great question. Here's how that catechism answered that. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, still being united to Christ, there's that doctrine, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Helpful catechism answer there. And so what Paul is saying is that he wants these believers to not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see that there in the text. Like the pagan culture around them. He says, we don't want you to, to, to weep and to wail and to moan with no hope. Because there is hope. We want you to understand the hope beyond the grave. That sets you apart from the watching world around you. Saying this stuff matters. He's not dismissing grief. Notice he's not saying, Thessalonians, don't grieve. If you grieve, then you're, you somehow are being less spiritual. He never says that. The Psalms give us the words that we need to process our grief. He doesn't shoo them away and dismiss their grief. He's simply implying that those who trust Christ are able to grieve with hope. Why? Isn't that the big question? Why? 
Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's antidote to excessive grief was to remind them of the historical reality of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which also includes a statement about their union with Christ by faith. You are united to Christ in this way, is what he says. The future historical reality that just as Christ was raised... Dead Christians who die in the Lord will not only be raised, but will also be bodily present with the Lord at his second coming. What an incredible promise. I can't even wrap my little pea brain around that. That's what Paul says. That's what gives us hope. Jesus, his return, that's what gives us hope, even in the midst of sadness and grief. Did you notice there it says, through Jesus, God the Father, did you notice the will bring? Not maybe, not might, will. There is a kind of a, a finality to that, isn't it? There's, it's like promise language. He will bring the dead in Christ with him by the power of the same Holy Spirit who raised the Son. And through soul and body will one day be reunited in the new heavens and the new earth. I have no idea what that's going to look like. But man, is that hopeful. Body and soul united together again. At the day of the Lord, just as Christ was resurrected. Ladies and gentlemen who trust Christ by faith, this is your future. What an incredible hope to cling to. Even as we feel our bodies starting to hurt and things aren't working anymore. And I told you before, I've, I'm that many years old where I can hurt myself in my sleep. I wake up and like, I literally laid there all night and now my knee hurts. How's that happen? You know, but as we groan and we feel the, the weight of sin just wrecking our bodies and wrecking our world, isn't it good to know, ladies and gentlemen, that because of Christ, that is not your end. There is a future hope in Christ. There's a future hope. We just lean into that. Verses 15 through 17 expand on these promises that are given in verses 13 and 14. They kind of give us a little bit more peek behind the curtain. And people get all bent out of shape going into the weeds of these verses, but the, the big idea of these verses is actually remarkably clear when you set them in context, okay? Here's the big idea. There will be no advantage to being alive or dead on the last day. We will all rise together to meet the Lord as one gathered family. Isn't that a more simple explanation? There's no advantage to being alive or dead. When the Lord comes and returns, we all will go and rise and meet him in the air as one gathered people, as one gathered family, as one adopted family into the, into the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we'll all rise together. Again, I have no idea what that's going to look like, and neither do you, and neither does anybody who writes books on this. But man, I can't wait to find out. What a, what a hopeful thing. What does this exactly look like? I don't know, and neither do you. But it'll be fun to find out together when it happens, which it will. What a reunion that's going to be. Can you think about that? What a reunion that is going to be. All the redeemed of the Lord gathered together, alive or dead on the last day. The promise is the same. Look at verse 17. What's the promise in the midst of this? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Ooh, here's the payoff. And so we will always be with the Lord. From that time forward, we will always be with the Lord. 
for all eternity with Christ, with no sin, no sadness, no pain, no death. That is the future hope of Christians. Don't forget, all of this is brought about because of what Christ has done, not what you have done. All of this is grounded in what Christ has done. There's zero talk about religious pedigree, degrees of faithfulness, merit, how many times I went to the church every time the door was open. There is zero talk about that in here. It is all based upon what Christ has done. Him and Him alone, which is exactly what the Scripture's about, right? It's not a story about you and what you should be doing. It's a story about, what God, about God and what He has done through His Son. It's all of Christ. All of Christ. The only common denominator is the only common denominators are that everyone raised will have been a great sinner who has been declared righteous by a great savior. Those are the two denominators. The two things that we will all have in common, regardless of background, regardless of the amount of money in our bank account and what our family name is. None of that matters. The thing that's going to matter in the end is that we're all great sinners. Every one of us. But he's a great savior. And we have been resurrected and united with him by grace alone. Those are the two things we'll all have in common. We're great sinners. But we have a greater savior. What hope that is. What is the, so what is the proper response to this wonderfully hopeful teaching? I hope, you are, I hope your hearts are just kind of swelling. Mine is. If not, hang on for the ride, right? So that's a wonderful statement of fact. These things are going to happen. He will bring with him everyone who, is, who has been called by his name. Every one of them will, not maybe, not might, will, united to him by faith and living or in dying, all is well because of Christ. That's true. You can take it to the bank. I don't care if you're young or if you're old. You can take that to the bank and base your life upon it. It's true. Every bit of it. So how do we respond? So what? This is the po- our second point. A vital response. We see this vital union. United to Christ in living or in dying. Body and soul. We are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A vital union. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. So what? This is the vital response that we see. This is how we respond. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What do you think our church would look like in six months if we spent most of our time encouraging each other in the Lord instead of complaining about things that won't matter one bit in eternity? Six months. What do you think our church would look like? We are called by the Apostle Paul through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to encourage each other with these words. What are those words? The preceding stuff about Jesus returning in glory. We are commanded. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What do you think our church would look like in six months if we, if we stopped complaining about stuff that does not matter in eternity and we encouraged each other in the Lord? Christ is coming back. He's coming back in glory to gather us fellow sinners in heaven with him forever by sheer grace. What exactly are we complaining about again? 
If that's the hope, Christ is returning in glory to take a bunch of rescued, messed up, sinful people like you and me. And He's going to gather them up. And He's going to take them into His arms into eternity forever. We will always be with the Lord. What is it we're complaining about? Y'all, there's hope in Christ. Don't you see it? Notice I'm not giving you a checklist of 20 things you need to do to get right before the day of the Lord. I'm throwing the same fastball I throw every week. Look to Christ. Focus on Christ. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. It's all of Christ. And it's all of grace. And it's all of mercy. It's amazing. It's impossible to be over-encouraged. You ever been over-encouraged? You ever had somebody like, please, would you please stop saying encouraging things to me? It's impossible. It's impossible to be over-encouraged. I would love to give it a try, though. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We're forgetful. We're forgetful people. Life's hard. Isn't it good sometimes you just have another brother or sister tuck alongside you and just remind you that Jesus is good and His Word is Because we forget. Let's find out if we can over-encourage each other. Once again, people get all hung up in the weeds about these next few verses, but they're remarkably simple when placed in context. Now, we do not have time to cover the different millennial views this morning. We're going to cover that in a few weeks in our Foundations Overview of Systematic Theology class on Sunday morning in Sunday school. We're going to cover it. Please come and join us. We'll have a whole hour to go through it. We don't have time to do that this morning. Okay, We're just going to move forward and look at the big picture. Okay, You can imagine the Thessalonians who were facing severe opposition hearing this great teaching and wondering, okay, so when will this great day come? That all sounds wonderful. When's it going to happen? And we've been wondering the same thing for centuries, but God will be faithful to his word. Do you believe this today, that God will be faithful to his word, even while you struggle, even while you grieve, even in the midst of difficulty, even when life has not worked out the way that you thought it would? Do you believe that God will be faithful to his word and there is nothing that is ever going to change it? That is hope. Baked into these verses, though, is both a warning for those who mock God and a call for those who trust Christ by faith. There's a warning and then a call. Let's look at the warning. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul says, nobody knows the exact day that the Lord will return. It will come like a thief in the night, and it will surely come. And you might be thinking, or you might be living your life like this, Dave, okay, I'll get around to all that Christian stuff later after I've had all the fun I want. Stop being such a killjoy. I'll get around to all that Christian stuff. Verse 3 tells you that if you are living like that, you are presuming upon the patience and mercy of God, whether you believe it or not. And that false sense of peace and security that you now have will one day be replaced with sudden destruction when you come face to face with the holy God and the righteous judge of all the earth. Paul says that they shall not, they will not escape. So, what's the call? If you are here and you don't trust the Lord as your Savior, or you're just playing pity pat with Him, here's the call. Flee to Christ. Repent. 
and flee to Christ. Run to Christ. He will come like a thief in the night. Flee to Christ. But notice this false self-assurance can also come in a very religious wrapper on the outside. Just because you come to church doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Do you trust Christ by faith alone? Do you? Or are you still foolishly clutching to your perceived religious merit and your perceived religious heritage as what will save you on the last day? If it's that second one, repent and flee to Christ. I am pleading with you as a minister of the gospel. Hear these words of Paul. Flee to Christ. Stop trying to do your own self-salvation project. It's not going to work. It's not. It's bad news. Flee to Jesus. Flee to Christ. Paul knew exactly what he was saying. He called himself a former blasphemer, and he was covered head to toe in a very religious wrapper, was he not? Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But yet, when I think about all that, it is rubbish when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Savior. He knew exactly. Later on, he said, I, but yet I was formerly a blasphemer. Though I looked very religious on the outside, at the heart level, I was a blasphemer until the Lord met me and showed me His grace. The gospel will never be good news if you still think you're a good person on your own. But it will become incredible news when you finally admit, maybe for the first time, that you actually are a sinner in utter need for a Savior because you finally see and admit your utter inability. Remember, the two common denominators we will all share on that last day is that we are all sinners. But yet, because of Jesus, we have a great Savior but now the call, which is shot through with gospel hope. This is verses 4 through 11 in chapter 5. There's a lot going on here. Verses 4 and 5, Paul says that God has called us from spiritual darkness into spiritual life and into the light of the gospel. So in verses 6 and 7, he basically says, so let's wake up and live as those redeemed by Christ in the midst of this fallen world. We are called to keep scanning the horizon as we wake up each day, watching and waiting for Christ's return. We wake up and we go, is today, could today be the day, O oh Lord, when you return in glory? Let's quit worrying about the exact time of Christ's return. We can't know it. It's impossible. And let's just be faithful until Christ returns or he calls us home. Now, I know that that view does not sell many end times books. There's no charts. It's remarkably simple. I know that that's not going to sell a bunch of end time books, but I think it is inherently biblical and I think it's much less complicated. So what's the call? Quit trying to figure out which day the Lord's going to come. Just go be faithful and trust Christ and go love your neighbor and go be faithful to the Great Commission to go and share the gospel and let the Lord work the rest of it out. And he either returns in glory or you die with your shoes on being faithful to Christ. That's it. Just go be faithful. That's it. Let the Lord work the rest of it out. Let's live with what Calvin called, quote-unquote, spiritual sobriety. Leading faithful lives to the glory of Christ, remembering that he who called you is faithful. Look at verse 8. Did you notice the little triad that Paul put in here in, verses, in verse 8 of chapter 5? That faith, hope, and love. Let's ask God to arm us with faith, hope, and love in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil as we live as those who, quote, belong to the day. 
Let's live under the good news of the gospel that Christ has secured for us. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is our memory verse. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What an amazing promise. All of this that Christ has secured for us. Christ died for us on the cross to purchase us back from the grave so that we can live with him. Whether your body lies in the grave or whether you are still breathing when Christ returns, the promise is exactly the same. We will always be with the Lord. Here are the promises of Christ your Savior from John 6, 37 to 40. I'm almost done. Hang with me. Here are the good words of your Savior. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the promise from the lips of your Savior. You say, I don't, I don't really buy into what Paul says. Fine. Here's the words of Christ. He says, I'm going to come and make good on the promise. And not a single one of them that my Father has given me is going to slip through my fingers. Every one of them, I'm going to bring them home. That's amazing. It's amazing. And this is what gives us hope as we face the reality of death. You want to know what the payoff is? What's the hope? It's this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ has died. Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's the hope. See, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for Christians. Every one of them. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. Every single one. You think about that. Psalm 116.15. You want to know about some words that really kept me, kept me bolstered in the midst of this past week? Psalm 116.15. Precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I believe every blessed syllable of it. And so should you, if you trust Christ by faith. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Yes! And that's why as I committed my sweet 90-year-old grandma to the ground as my hand was on her casket, I knew with full scriptural confidence that I will see her again because Christ is faithful to his word all the time. Sometimes I feel like that promise gets so close I can almost reach out and grab it. You ever sung that hymn when we all get to heaven? What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Look at verse 11. So what? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Let's encourage each other with these words. Let's encourage each other with what is true. Let's encourage each other with the promises of the gospel, which every one of them find their yes and amen in Christ. Let's quit complaining about stuff that doesn't matter. Life's hard enough. Encourage each other in the Lord. In the Lord. Look at your fellow brothers and sisters and remind them, you are a sinner saved by grace, and he's coming back to get you, and there's nothing you can do to anything about that. Now go be faithful. Go live under that hope. His banner over you is love. 
The finished words of Christ hang over you because of your union with Him. It is finished. Therefore, we have peace with God because of the cross. Isn't that hopeful, encouraging words? You ever get tired of hearing that your sin debt has been paid for at the cross of Calvary? I don't. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. One more time. What is your only hope in life and death? After all that we've talked about, what's your only hope in life and death? It's this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Oh, you redeemed saints who are united to Christ by faith, let's wake up and go live as blood-bought sinners who have a new future and a hope because of Christ, and let's just go be faithful. And let's encourage each other. It's that simple. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, these wonderful promises read at funerals for centuries as we consider your great promises that you are going to return in glory to rescue and redeem and reclaim all of us sinners, Lord. We are grateful that on that last day we will have two things in common, that we are great, great sinners united to Christ by faith alone, and that we have a great Savior. And Father, help us to encourage each other with these words. Lord, help us to remind each other of Christ's return. Help us to remind each other of the grace and mercy that has been purchased for us at the cross of Calvary. Lord, help us to remind each other of the gospel. Lord, help us to be slow to complain and quick to encourage. Lord, remind us of the great hope that we have in this life and even in death because of Christ's death and his resurrection and his promise to return again in glory. May that day come soon. But Lord, even as we wait for your return, help us to be faithful by your Spirit. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.